HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Today's episode, Cameron Stock takes us on a journey into the world of vegetarian Vietnam, a culture and cuisine known for its brothy, complex pho soups and layered banh mi sandwiches, comes a vision of vegetarianism brought to light by Mahayana Buddhists. And now, Cameron, you first visited Hanoi in 2000 uh, as a chef, as a tourist. Why was there an allure to that part of the world? Well, I was living in Hong Kong at the time, and uh, my wife and uh, my in-laws went for a Christmas vacation, and they ended up going shopping for some uh, lacquerware and silk. And I was like, no, 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 I, I understand the, the street food here is really great. So um, I just wanted to be able to taste the freshness. Um, I love the use of herbs in cuisines, and I understood that that existed in Vietnamese food. So um, I just wanted to kind of go out and first try that uh, for the first time when we were there. And so herbs, that is a British affectation, but you are a Canadian. I am a Canadian. <laughs> so, but you have traveled the world, and this is what I find so fascinating. Through your wife's job, you have been able to live, not just travel to, but live in a lot of international cities for a good period of time. Yeah, that's right. My wife's a Canadian diplomat, and so um, we've just been, we've kind of always chosen places that have good food. So uh, I've lived in Hong Kong. Um, India, I lived in Delhi, I lived in Hanoi, Vietnam, and now uh, I live in Bangkok. And we're generally there for a period of three or four years. So it's a way that um, while she's working, I'm trying to kind of find out as much as I can about the local food scene. Yeah, but when you say something like, oh, I hear there's good street food here, how, how do you assimilate, how do you adopt a new culture, custom, cuisine? Mm. Well, for me, the first thing that um, I like to do is I try to learn the language. 
Um, I find that that helps as a great entry point by learning the language. Um, I can learn more about the culture. Um, that way I'm able to actually meet locals um, through teaching classes. When I go to the wet markets, I kind of start to try to dive in that way um, to learn as much as I can about the place that I'm at. So P-H-O is pronounced? F. And then Bon Mi is? Bon Mi. Okay, so I, I've got two. You've got two. I, yeah. I can eat those two things, but I can eat those two things as meat items mm-hmm. and vegetarian items. Because what was so fascinating about your book is that the majority of vegetarian dishes in Vietnam are just replicas or inspired by the meat ones. Yeah, that's something that um, I have to say when I started my research when I was there, uh, that kind of threw me because you would get, you'd be in a vegetarian restaurant and then it would say something like beef or um, something with shrimp. Um, but there was always the word chai at the end, C-H-A-Y, which indicates that it's vegetarian. So it would, sometimes the menus threw you off because they're indicating to the uh, customer that this is a replica of this meat or seafood dish. Um, so that was something that I had to wrap my head around and get used to. But, I mean, it must have been amazing to have that first bite of that nutty mushroom pate in a banh mi and then realize that you might not have been missing the meat. Yeah, and I think actually what threw me the most was um, when when I'd have that first banh mi that was really special, a vegetarian one, and go, wow, th- how did they do that with such simple and like simple ingredients and also minimal ingredients? Um, so it was just trying to figure out what are they mimicking um, and how is generally I say she because most of the cooks that I cooked with were women. Um, so how did she prepare that? Um, and then what I would do is I would take a look at the, I'd, I'd eat meat dishes and I'd eat, um, seafood dishes and I'd try to see, okay, what are they trying to mimic and how are they trying to do the layers and so on and so forth? Well, I think this word layers comes up, uh, quite often in your research, in your book, because of how layered and storied, uh, the influences of Vietnamese food is, you know, from the Khmer empire to India and the trading routes of the Khom people and you know, French, there are baguettes there. Mm. So, so how do you interpret through all of that? Well, one, I think for me, it was just trying to find out as much information as I could, um, say through, uh, most of the stuff that I read at least was in English. I can do basic, read basic Vietnamese, but more just cookbooks. Um, But then it was through, by living in the part of the world that I've lived in, I was able to connect dots um, or just see influences like, oh, this dish is like this that I had in India. Or here's, you know, Vietnam has such a a strong Chinese influence from history with its food. So you could kind of see how things connected that way. Um, So, yeah, that's how. Well, I mean, that that helps that you've been positioned in that part of the world in different cities for so long, too. But... Really, the the most intriguing part was a specific sect, the the Mahayanan Buddhists. And explain to me who they are in the greater context of Vietnam and what makes them as a people, even before their food, so special. So um, the type of Buddhism that's practiced in Vietnam is Mahayana Buddhism, um, which uh, first Buddhism came from India and then it made its way into uh, China and it came down into Vietnam and um, that type of Buddhism um, where there's Theravada Buddhism which is um, mainly more in uh, Thailand, Sri Lanka and so forth and 
There, they view vegetarianism in a different way. So the Mahayana Buddhists look that you should not um, kill anything for your own consumption, whereas Theravada Buddhists see that um, it, they will eat meat or seafood as long as it was not killed for their own consumption. So lay people will maybe make something, you know, in Thailand, make something that's meat or seafood, They'll make it for their family, and then they'll donate it to the local monastery. Ah, so you don't mean like getting hit by a car? Or no, no, no. no. Okay. <laughs> Nothing like that. But I thought it was such an interesting distinction because the replication of these meat dishes came from, uh, you know, the, this type of Buddhist not wanting to insult anybody while they cooked for them. Right. Uh, my understanding is that it originated in China, and what they wanted to do there, the monks wanted to uh, invite people who ate meat and seafood into their home or into their monastery or temple. And um, so they cunningly made replicas um, in look and in texture, if they could, um, of the meat seafood dishes using seitan, using tofu, um, and that, you know, made its way into Vietnam. And then they've continued to do that, as well as some home cooks. So does this, this term mindfulness comes up quite often. Does this connect to mindfulness in the sense of uh, sustainability, or is mindfulness something else completely? Um, I think it is moving to the sustainability, but it's more the m concept of mindful eating or mindful living. So um, I spent a couple, uh, at all the monasteries that I, or nunneries that I went to cook at, um, they live their life in a mindful way. So whether it was uh, the way they, how they were cleaning, they were doing it with a, uh, you know, a purpose, but also being conscious of everything. And the same thing with their cooking when they're in the kitchens. Um, you know, there's no music blaring like there would be in a restaurant kitchen. Um, similarly, no hymns or anything like that being chanted. But they would do things purposefully and in a thoughtful manner. And um, that goes with eating as well. You know, so it's, it's taking a bite of something, thinking as you're chewing slowly, thinking about where the food came from, the people who grew the food, giving thanks to the earth, you know, to those people. Um, so it, it goes into that mindful eating aspect. I mean, it's a type of meditation, maybe not transcendental, but what were you thinking about and what were you chewing on the first time you thought about what you were eating? Mm. Well, I was, um, I was in a nunnery outside of Hue, was kind of my first attempt at mindful eating. And there was young nuns, I would say, in their late teens, early 20s, and we were having a lunch. Um, and it was a simple lunch of uh, daikon, glaze and soy sauce, some rice, some stir-fried greens, and a simple broth soup. And I took uh, a number of daikon strips into my rice bowl, and I greedily shoved three into my mouth. And, you know, when you're doing mindful eating, in these instances, there's no talking. Um, you're just kind of chewing slowly, quietly, trying to think about, um, you know, the nourishment that's feeding your body where it came from. But as I bit into these daikon strips, um, I just realized I was crunching really loud like you go into a crisp pickle and uh, I thought god I hope nobody hears me and I, and I and I looked up at the table and you know these 10 young nuns just were giggling at each other because my attempt um, they knew I was attempting but it wasn't as successful as it could have been I think I should have just taken one yeah and I could have quietly done that See, I, I like the slurping culture of ramen in Tokyo and I've kind of uh, grown to embrace it in a way that I try to out slurp you know, in both amount that I eat as well as, you know, audible quality uh, than anybody else around me. But th this is the opposite end of the spectrum. 
Yeah, and the thing that I also liked though was like the nonverbal. You, I, I discovered you used your eyes a lot. If you if there was something on the table that somebody wanted passed, you could kind of see that they just kind of, you know, give a nudge with their eyes to say, "Hey, can you pass that over there?" Whether it's be soy sauce or maybe some like uh, sesame salt or something. That's how they would communicate. So, have you taught your children this, uh, and have they learned it and stopped saying please and thank you because they can just look? No, that <laughs> that hasn't happened. But actually, funny enough, just the last last week, my son and his friend were uh, practicing mindful eating with a raisin. You know, that's often the one that they start with because you can savor the sweetness and and so on and so forth. And they just kind of greedily took it in. So we we're like, guys, I think you failed. We got to do this again. <laughs> Luckily, I'm assuming there are plenty of reasons to be mindful for. I think so. Excellent. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more to Cameron Stock about vegetarian Vietnam. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Cameron Stock of Vegetarian Vietnam. And, you know, Vietnamese food has flourished in the U.S., mainly on the concept of red boat fish sauce. People love that ingredient, and it is in so many people's pantries that don't even know how to use it properly. But when we're talking vegetarian Vietnamese food, what do we do in substitute of that? Yeah, that's one of the questions I get asked the most. And, um, you know, in, in Vietnam, I did come across some vegetarian fish sauce products, um, I really only came across one that was that I that I liked in taste, and it's hard to get here. So, um, generally, it's just I use soy and some salt, some soy sauce and salt um, as a substitute. But then it's also looking at how can we bring, you know, umami um, that comes from fish sauce or other meat seafood based dishes into the the vegetarian repertoire. So it's looking at you know, say soybean pastes, uh, fermented tofu, um, seaweed. Uh, dried shiitake mushrooms, things like that, that that can help boost that umami flavor into vegetarian dishes. Well, it's that pantry, though simple. Um, it's complex in the nuances and how you use it and the quality of what you use. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we can start by talking about just stocks, simply, and how important those are. Sesame seeds, mushroom powder, crispy fried shallots, toasted rice powder. How hard is it to stock yourself to start cooking Vietnamese food, specifically vegetarian? 
Well, I think um, vegetarian or not vegetarian, I don't think it's hard at all. Um, you know, if you're in the time that you can make, a, I, I offer two different uh, vegetable stocks um, that I've tried to make that you can cross over to under the cuisines. Um, but in the time that you make those stocks, it's about an hour, hour and a half, um, you can get those other pantry basics up to running, like, you know, toasting your uh, sesame seeds or crisping shallots. You know, there are some cheats that you can buy at the, at the store if you kind of want to be a bit more lazy or, you know, you're just, you're one time you're running late and you want to get that. So it's easy to put them all together. And once you've got it, um, it's, I find Vietnamese food, once that pantry's set up, it's really quick to assemble, actually. Yeah, so it's looking at almost like Ford. There's an assembly line once you actually have everything in its place. Yeah, yeah. So going to restaurants there, floating markets, etc. Um, talk to me about how you've seen dishes assembled and what ingredients you had never seen before and now incorporate into your cooking. Mm. You know, I think the two ingredients that I really uh, come to love that I hadn't encountered as much was yuba or uh, tofu skin um, and then yet fresh uh, young jackfruit young green jackfruit so not the ripe but the unripe and the the great thing about the young ripe jackfruit is just that it takes on such great flavor but it also adds texture so um, you know a lot of cooks will use it to uh, imitate say chicken um, maybe pork or something like that in a salad or in a braise of some sort um, and then the yuba, I just love how it's just got this great nutty flavor. And it's also creamy at the same time. And you can make it into um, just a fabulous vegetarian sausage. Um, it's, I think my recipe has like three or four ingredients. Um, I had a, a lady in Vietnam teach, me, teach it to me. And it's really quick to assemble. It's just that it takes time to steam. Um, and there's a great product here in the United States that Hoda Soy does out of uh, California. And... Uh, it is amazing that fresh tofu skin. Uh, I highly recommend that. Oh, I, to I love it as well. Oh, it's it's amazing. It, one thing that you can't kind of uh, you know skimp on, or you 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 have to have the freshest and best is herbs, mm. or however you say that word. But these herbs are something that I know a lot of people trying to cook Vietnamese or even Thai food here had a hard time finding, mm. and started sourcing seeds, getting farmers to grow, but. Go along the list of what important herbs there are in Vietnamese cuisine and whether or not they're available here, and if not, how to grow them. Sure. Um, well, I think the, uh, the first three simple ones that I think that you can find in, in any grocery store is you're looking at cilantro, mint, and then Thai basil. You can't necessarily always get Thai basil in the grocery store, but you could substitute Italian basil if you really uh, were at a loss of where to find other things. And then you move on to Thai basil, uh, dill, you have Vietnamese coriander, um, and then you have shiso or red perilla. Um, and then there's some more obscure herbs, kind of like rice paddy herb, um, you know, which will be in different dishes. And the interesting thing with the vegetarian dishes is sometimes you can tell by the herb garnish when you're at a vegetarian restaurant what the dish is also. It's another indication of what is it mimicking. Um, so that was an, another indicator that I was like, okay, this is, yeah. this, this herb is in it. So then this is, it's close to this. Give dish. me an example of that. So like, for example, rice paddy herb, uh, is in, um, uh, Kang Chua. So it's a kind of a sweet and sour soup. Um, and, uh, that's generally used as a garnish there. Um, or you'll look at, uh, shiso, the red shiso, there's a, a mock crab soup 
from the north. And that's generally used as a garnish there. And, you know, if you're really stuck, um, just use the cilantro, the mint, or the basil um, as your kind of basic herbs if you're stuck on where to find it. The best places to go are really Vietnamese um, or Southeast Asian grocers. Um, but sometimes you can find like culantro. You'll, you'll be able to go to a Latin American grocer for that as well. So there is some crossover. You just have to kind of find out in your area. See, when I start cooking Vietnamese food, and I don't attempt it often, and you're going to help me through this, and so is this book, I know how to make a soy chili dipping sauce. I, I can do, you know, the, the, the pickled daikon and radish. I kind of pump the brakes at tofu. Because as much as I know there is good tofu in this country, I do not know how to work with it as well as I mm-hmm. want. And even more intimidating is making it at home. But you write it out so simply, uh, you know, Tricks such as pressing for frying, both deep, shallow, and pan, baking, freezing for textural modification. How big of a staple is tofu within vegetarian Vietnamese food? Um, in it, it's quite a big staple. Um, the thing that I discovered in the, I learned in the north was that in the north they tended to want to have a lot more seitan in their um, as their mock meats in dishes. Um, in the center, in the south there seem to be a lot more tofu. Um, I think a lot more people here in North America prefer tofu over seitan, so I kind of focused more on that. (laughs) How Uh, do you feel about it, though? I feel the same, actually. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I feel the same, but I think it's still important. Like, I added a a seitan recipe. Um, And then we've also got some, you know, of these uh, faux meats that are coming up, you know, beyond meat and so on and so forth, where they've got a beyond chicken that I, I, I think's got a great texture and actually a good taste. And I, I've included just a couple recipes with uh, ingredients like that because I, I think that um, if a Vietnamese vegetarian cook had access to them, I think that they'd be using them. Um, so that's why I just did that for a couple things, but people can easily adjust them in the book if they, if they need to. Or you can just have a vegetarian banh mi, as is in the book, and enjoy yeah. it like that. You know, going into more street snacks, there's a lot of rice-based things from rice paper, uh, spring rolls, but then you have, you know, cellophone, uh, you know, noodle roll-ups. Um, talk to me about what street food is relative to the food you did or food you cooked in people's homes. Mm. Um, the food, uh, for me, the, the, the food in people's homes I found to be um, much more simply prepared. Um, uh, just a few ingredients put together. Sometimes there'd be something a bit uh, longer, like there might be take time to make roll something that has to be steamed. Whereas the street food stuff, there was a greater mise en place, um, but it was quickly assembled and then being able to eat, the, you know, right there on the, on the street. Um, you'd have some, some of the, the noodle soups, though, that would require some cooking in advance by the cook you know, at the shop or at the street stall. And then it was, again, a quick assembly. So once that stock was done, you know, it's in your bowl at your table or at your feet within a minute. So it, again, it's that idea of that the mise en place, once it's all set up, you can you put, quickly put it together. So you're saying they're masterful at like a, a casual, fast, casual, quick service restaurants. I think fast, casual with um, amazing layers of flavor, uh, texture, um, freshness. And the thing that always blows me away is how light you feel after eating Vietnamese food. Um, you know, th- there would be meals where I'd have, 
you know, two or three things. And then I'd be like 20 minutes later, I'm like, I'm kind of hungry, but <laughs> I was, I was also, uh, you know, satiated as well. So, um, yeah, no, I think that, that Vietnamese cooks, I, I think they're one of the best, um, there are out there. One of my favorite dishes is vermicelli noodles with fresh turmeric. Mm. And usually what is kacha? It's usually done with like a catfish or, but you have a version in here with tofu and Chinese chives. That dish, it's one of those that I can eat 20 bowls of, well, feel satiated after one, but just want to keep eating and eating and never feel kind of weighed down by it. Well, and I think that's a good example, too, of dishes that are deceptively simple, but have maximum flavor. You know, um, you've just, the turmeric is kind of the main flavor, but then you've got those uh, Chinese chives that acts of accents, um, you know, some tofu or mushrooms for texture, um, and again, it's just, it's a simple, quick, quickly put together, but the flavor is there. That kind of always, always surprising to me how, how t- tasty it is. And it's so quick. Something that I love here, you know, we eat a lot of oatmeal in the U.S., um, but porridge. And I kind of want to talk about rice in the context that it is so versatile in Vietnam, you know, from sticky to, you know, crispy to using it as a batter for crepes. Um, Talk to me about that versatility, the simplicity of, you know, making those things, but the complexity of eating them. Well, I think that you'll you'll find in Vietnam that rice in some form is always at at the meal. You know, so you're you're either getting uh, noodles in, in a dry dish or in a, um, a bowl, uh, a noodle soup, um, or you're going to have chow. So like the rice porridge um, might be a nice comforting dish. Um, and then you're going to find it, whether it be like the, the wrappers or in the crackers, um, or like you said, in, in bang sale with the lentil and the, the, the rice flour batter. Um, so, I, you know, rice is just kind of part of life there. Um, I, I guess that's all I can say. For no, you. no, it, it's great. It's, it, contextually, it's a carrier for a lot of other things, too, because what you have at the markets are, are usually a plethora of greens simply stir-fried or sautéed. Um, you have a bright green herby omelet, which I'm definitely going to try. That's in the book. But again, nothing seems that complex or out of reach. So it's a matter of setting yourself up for it, reading that recipe through, and giving it an attempt because they are so wonderfully layered recipes and you feel like you've accomplished something so much more complex than you have. And I think something that's important that I found um, in Vietnamese cuisine is... Um, kind of not omitting ingredients because sometimes if you miss that one little ingredient you don't realize how important it is yeah so even something that that i was surprised at was freshly ground black pepper in vegetarian cooking that final little twist on a noodle soup like on pho just kind of brightened everything and i would notice it if if it wasn't added and you were just like, huh, what, what's missing? And then I'd be like, oh, it's that. Yeah. It's the same thing with salads. If you're missing the crispy shallots or the peanuts or the toasted sesame seeds. Um, and that's why I say with the herbs, go with those three or at least two of those three because you'll at least still have that layer of, of flavor. You actually have that caveat in your book. And it is the most nicely discouraging way of saying no substitutions, please. But it's true. These dishes are built on layers and layers of foundation not just one block mm-hmm. so you need that whole gamut of things for it to be complete and we're going to finish with a vietnamese coffee because uh, that that is aside from pho or banh mi is probably the most ubiquitously known 
Vietnamese dish, but it's not really Vietnamese. Well, I think you've got the influence with the French, right? Um, bringing in the canned milk uh, into into Vietnam. But I think that's the thing with, with Vietnamese uh, food and culture is they have, as a people, have always been able to take uh, influences from other cultures and make it their own and make it uniquely Vietnamese, which I think is what's what's wonderful about just Vietnamese cuisine when you look at the different influences coming from other cultures. Um, so they can do it with coffee, they can do it with bread and banh mi, they can do it with noodles and stocks and things like that from the Chinese or some influences from the French, but that's, I think, that's the unique kind of you know, USP to, uh, to Vietnamese food and culture that I, I always loved seeing how they could do that. And what's wonderful, you talk about this uniqueness, but the perspective you give too, not just as a vegetarian, or not that you are a vegetarian, but in the lens of vegetarianism, um, as a Canadian, as a world traveler, as a chef, is, is so wonderfully done in this book. Uh, it's so wonderfully dense with information and understanding and mindfulness that you know you should be very proud of that oh thank you thank you it was fun writing it excellent well everyone should go out and get this book today and we can find more about you and your adventures at a globaltable.com thank you very much for being on thank Cameron. you very much Michael. a big thank you to corin for sponsoring music by cookies and david tattashore engineering and hope to have you back here next tuesday at three cheers for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.